this week on Big Meow. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, we're back again with another episode. Thanks to our Dig Me Out union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com. Jay, we got another patron-selected episode. This is the first one for a guest who has joined us a few times. I believe most recently for the Nirvana 500th episode celebration cluster that we did. It was definitely a celebration. Yes. <laughs> we, will be ne- we will next be doing that when Mariah Carey releases her 1995 grunge album that was uh, leaked to the internet today. Did you hear about that, Marissa? Welcome, what? Marissa Buxbaum. Wow. Um, yes. I, no, I, that, that's... Uh... I had not heard of that, and I, for a second, I was like, "Oh my god, I'm in a parallel universe." No, this is this was breaking news on on Sunday, the day we're recording this. By the time this comes out, we will have completely forgotten about it. So people will be like, "What? What happened exactly?" <laughs> uh, she when she was recording her, I guess it was her second album. She was like having some just like difficulties in the studio, and 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 like you know, just struggling. And so to deal with it, she started, her and her friend were like writing like grunge songs. And that ended up becoming a band called Chick that the woman like put out an album a couple years later and Mariah Carey sings back up on the record. And nobody knew it was Mariah Carey until today. And this was released on a major label back in like 1995 or six or something like that. You know what? Mariah has the range. She does. <laughs> I really want, and it, it's, what's weird is that it, it kind of sounds like celebrity skin hole. Like you can kind of, you know, see Mariah doing that, and I kind of want a whole record of it because I'm, I'm a. Uh, what's the fandom for Mariah called? I don't know what that is. I don't, I don't know that they they have like an official name, right? Because um, Gaga has the monsters. Yeah. You know. And there's, but there's it's, a- it's an intriguing uh, concept, and yeah, I would be <laughs> totally down for a Mariah Grunge record. So they're called, lam- they're called lambs. Oh, that's the light, the lambs. <laughs> Why didn't I know that, Marissa? Welcome back to the program. Thank you. It's an honor. I I am <laughs> so stoked to be talking about one of my favorite albums of all time and uh you know at first i was like oh god i wonder why they haven't done this one yet that's that's crazy and then i realized oh the whole premise of dig me out is that you dig out the overlooked and the underrated (laughs) and this is a fucking platinum record so i apologize for polluting your whole schema with uh you know a 1998 (laughs) Well, no, because it sold a million copies. (laughs) Well, but what's interesting is that I think for most people, they just know the single. Yeah. You know, that's and and it's a single that. Because of its sort of unique 
sound, a lot of people know it. Like there are a lot of hit singles in the 90s where people go, is that, which band is that? You know, is that Seven Mary 3 or is that Third Eye Blind or, you know, they don't, but this you go, oh, that's Fastball. Like, you know it right away. So I I will say that, like, there's a friend of mine um, who thinks my, like, all-encompassing obsession with fastball is is very amusing. So he will still, to this day, like, introduce me to friends of his when we're at shows together. Oh, this is Marissa. She's really into fastball. And about 50% 50 of the time, you know, somebody will go, oh, I love that song. And the other 50% of the time they'll go, wait, who's fastball? And I will right. sing terribly like the opening bars and they'll go, oh, I love that song. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's household, uh, a, a household late 90s rock, um, unlikely success. That's not an, a, a weird band. I don't think that's a weird band because they've had a career to be, you know, have a band that you're associated with. I know someone whose favorite band is Rusted Root. That to me is a little weirder. Yeah, I have no idea who that is. <laughs> and you're okay because of that. You're you're okay. Jay knows, and Jay is shaking his head like, "What?" I'm trying to figure out who, what friend of yours his favorite band is. Rusted it's not Root. a. It's a friend of my wife's, like okay. that. I, I'm friendly with. Okay. And also, I, I know someone whose favorite band is The Refreshments. that that's that i've never heard of them either i say as i sip my refreshment you know the refreshments because they had like one um one sort of catchy uh single that was uh you if you if we played it you would hear you would know it yeah i mean look i i have uh i have one hit wonder syndrome or at least two hit wonder syndrome where i inexplicably uh latch on to bands that Mm -hmm. everybody else has forgotten so well, I mean, this, that's how I am with like theme of my life. Right. I'm, I'm, I mean, hum is technically like barely a one hit wonder. And I, that's a band that I continually still am like, I love hum. But like other people are like, what? That what that stars band? They're like, what? You love lamp. What are you talking yeah. about? <laughs> exactly. Uh, so it's their 1998 album. All the pain money can buy was released on Hollywood records. That was your pick. Um, you, you mentioned that you are a huge fan. When did you first discover this band? So, um, I was 10 years old. I was, I was a kid and, um, you know, I, I have, a like a small number of bands for which I want to say that I possess like S tier fandom cred foaming at the mouth caliber enthusiasm, um, the Afghan wigs and the twilight singers among them, but fastball is the one that predates them all um it was the first album that i actually insisted on acquiring that i actively sought out and demanded relative to prior practice which at the time was for me to simply raid my dad's collection on the basis of whatever he had been playing and sounded interested to me or sounded interesting to me. So I had a bunch of like Beatles records and I had a copy of Pearl Jam's 10. And that was like my reference pool at the time, but that was all entirely um, osmotic. Fastball was the moment of like, I need to go to HMV right now. Do not pass go. (laughs) 
do not collect $200. I heard that song on the radio and I want to play it over and over and over again. And the rest is, yeah, the rest is history. Thus began a long and deeply loyal obsession. How many times have you seen them live? That is a really good question. Um, I only actually ever started seeing them as a live band in 2017, but I want to say maybe 10. Oh, wow. Crammed a lot in there in that short period of time. Yeah, I uh, very serendipitously converted my dad to hardcore fastball fandom. Um, (laughs) I'm I'm a nervous traveler, so when they did the uh, 20th anniversary re-release of All the Pain Money Can Buy, I... Um, he accompanied me for a flight down to Austin to see them play. Um, I, I want to say they played the record in full. I honestly don't remember, but he, that him seeing them live was a, I guess, a transformative moment for him. So clearly, fastball affection is genetic. Uh, and um, I think aside from that excursion. Everything else has been like following them around in the general Northeast corridor, which is my typical uh, my typical route when when a band I love is on tour. I just hit you know whatever Amtrak trains to get every city in the Northeast, and that's what I've been doing for fastball. Gotcha. Now, Jay, did you know that they were from Austin? I didn't at the time in the '90s. I actually didn't know where they were from, but um, obviously being here the last couple of years. Um, and then doing this show, it kind of came together. So a little history, and I'm sure you probably know some some history. So I'll let you uh, fill in some some the the more I- interesting information. Uh, they formed in '95. The band members are Tony Scalzo. Is that pronounced? Is that the correct pronunciation? Yeah, I thought it was Scalzo, but I think it's actually Scalzo. Uh, Miles Zuniga and mm-hmm. Joey Shuffield. And that's been it. I mean, there's not been any turnover for the band in terms that's of, correct. uh, there was, um, there touring was a members. Brief, brief period of potential reshuffling, um, or, or rather I should say considered reshuffling when Miles moved to Nashville after the second record was released and released in sort of a nosedived in terms of commercial sales. But uh, yeah, I mean, they have been the same three guys uh, making records and touring together since their inception, which is impressive for any band that's been around as long as they have. And they've had a variety of, of touring members um, who fill in extra guitar and, and I'm, Looks like Tony moves around from different instruments. So they've had a bass player uh, move in and out. And then interestingly, uh, Robin Wilson from Gin Blossom, from the Gin Blossoms was on uh, backing vocals and percussion in their in 2013 while they were on tour. I, I wish I could have seen that because um, I love Robin Wilson. And apparently Robin Wilson loves me because I'm always front row at the Smithereen shows that uh, that he plays when he is the the vocalist um for those tours but um unfortunately yeah i i did not start seeing fastball on the live circuit until much later than i ever should have 
so the first album so they signed to Hollywood for the first record um which is the major that has put out a, a lot of stuff um that was make your mama proud in 96 and have you heard that record obviously yes, i mean um, yes how does it compare um, to this record so i love make your mama proud i don't necessarily think that the band is as fond of it or views it as sort of most representative of what they are and what they consider themselves you know what, what, what how they would contextualize their own sound it it sounds like fastball as a square peg being shoved into a green day style round hole which is more a consequence i think of what the label how the label wanted to to market them um than i think what they expressly like the path they expressly wanted to go down but with that said it's it's a lot of fun um there there are some gems on it are you ready for the fallout still makes an appearance at just about every fastball live gig interesting so then this record that we're revisiting uh all the pain money can buy that came out in march of 98 it was co-produced with Julian Raymond, who works with a lot of interesting and diverse artists, including Cheap Trick, Insane Clown Posse, what? and Glenn, Glenn Campbell. <laughs> okay. Wow, what an assortment. <laughs> also includes Fleetwood Mac, the Cottonmouth Kings. Oh my God. And Jennifer Nettles. Jennifer Nettles being the jack of many trades, clearly. Yes. Um, so, I mean, what I'm saying is like, you got a guy who's got studio experience and I mean, you've worked with Fleetwood Mac. You worked with, uh, you know, a lot of very veteran artists um, on this record. And then, so the follow up, as you mentioned, this is a, a you know, a platinum record uh, of, uh, where the single what did this where did the single end up and uh did that go number one or was that let's see for, the single, second, boy. for, for all the pain the money can buy or harsh light a day which was off off of the all the pain money can buy did the way make it to um number one in the u.s looks like it did a couple different charts it, it might have done so on the modern rock chart i don't think on the you know general yeah it went to Number one on U.S. Adult Alternative and Alternative Airplay. Made number two on Adult Top 40. 25 on Mainstream Rock. Number four on Mainstream Top 40. And number five on Radio Songs. I don't know what chart that is. Um, but anyway, it charted well. It made the top 100 in a bunch of different countries. Um, and the top 10 in a number of countries like Canada and Sweden and uh top 15 in norway that sort of thing so obviously this set them up to in 2000 um make a big follow-up record which included appearances on uh the ninth or the 2000 record the harsh light of day including appearances by billy preston and brian setzer yep they also appeared on an episode of charmed for this um <laughs> For this album as a uh, 
as a band that played in a bar because that was the thing to do in the end of the in the 90s and 2000s is to show up as a band in a bar or in some sort of a uh, establishment like I think the Flaming Lips were on 90210 and Death Cab for Cutie were on some show like that and the Goo Goo Dolls and they all played at the Peach Pit at some point. <laughs> the Peach Pit. <laughs> oh man. You got to do your time at the Peach Pit. The Flaming Lips on 90210, but sure, why not? What was the other what was it the, the OC? That was the one that the uh, that Death Cab was on. They that were on the OC. That makes a lot more sense. Yes. <laughs> um so and then the rest of the records are Keep Your Wig On, 2004, Little White Lies, 2009, Step Into the Light in 2017, and then The Help Machine in 2019. So what's with the gap between Little White Lies and Step Into the Light? Did the band go on hiatus? Um, I, I actually want to say that the sort of drop-off in activity was precipitated by the band being, and obviously I can't speak for them, but this this is my understanding of it, they were demoralized by um, being dropped from Hollywood after Harsh Light a Day. And um, as I mentioned previously, Miles was sort of trying to figure out if he wanted to do something different. And he moved to Nashville. And uh, Tony and Joey, I guess, briefly auditioned potential replacements for Tony in Fastball, which never really gelled. Um, and keep your wig on materialized out of the band, um, you know, coming back together, Miles moved back to Austin. And even though there was never like a formal break or hiatus, that, that period of, of inactivity was, was precipitated by, um, the failure of Harsh Light of Day to approach, um, anything close to what all the pain money can buy. Um, had accomplished in terms of record sales and ubiquity. And um, it's it's a bummer to me because Keep Your Wig On, as far as I'm concerned, is the like platonic ideal fastball record. It's the most representative of who they are as a band, what they sound like. It's, um, in my opinion, the best songwriting. It, it's, it's, their, it's hands down the best fastball record. And it's a bummer because I feel like at that point, as a consequence largely of, you know, market and management forces that were, you know, partially, at least partially out of their control, um, they just haven't remained present in the popular consciousness the way that other 90s bands um, have been able to uh, maintain name recognition or get name recognition beyond like the two and a half hits that fastball had. Right. So to yeah. me, it's a great injustice, and I'm I'm salty about it. But at the same time, I've grown accustomed over the past. I guess it'll be I'm 32 now, so 22 years to having my like in extremely batshit fastball fandom being kind of a lonely idiosyncrasy. Yeah. I was just looking at the, the numbers, the drop off of sales from all the pain money can buy to the harsh light of day is crazy. Like uh, 1.25 million in sales 
to eighty five thousand. I gotta right. believe that that's that's a lot of that is the record label not giving a shit at that point, like just throwing it out there and saying. I mean, they gave him the money to make the record, obviously, because they obviously had some sort of contract, whether it was a three album deal or whatever they thought. But I mean, in two thousand, you know, it was like. I can't imagine that they could find a way to follow that up. That just what the music that was being played on the radio was not, unless they went in like a Foo Fighters direction. I don't see where they were going to like, cause it was a lot of like pop punk. That's your, like your some 41s and your, you know, then you also have Creed is like huge at that point. All those new metal bands are dominating in 2000. Right. I mean, I, what's, I, I think it's a, it's, obviously a, a complex combination of factors and you know I, I think it's it's harder to explain runaway success than it is to explain why something didn't succeed but um you know for starters it's never a good time to be like a, a power pop band or a power pop type or adjacent yeah kind of band unless you're the knack in 1979 and even that uh <laughs> bit them in the ass pretty quick um but to me the thing that's special about fastball and one of the reasons i love them is that they're they're allergic to artifice and i think that has maybe paradoxically worked against them and, and i don't mean to say that artifice is a bad thing um you know, it's a theatrical device. It's historically successful when deployed in certain ways. Um, and I don't just mean the kind which I think sometimes gets unfairly targeted around the late 90s, early aughts. It's like that was, there was a lot of that, the, the boy band glossy pop artifice that they were competing with, but also just like the image and persona um, manufacturing that would be characteristic of like much of rock music since its origins. And there was plenty of that in the late 90s from yeah mm -hmm. like the the new metal type stuff to to post grunge so fastball is is approaching their particular trade and craft which is kind of like straight shooting rock and roll music and they're doing this at the precise moment in music history where artifice as artistic expression is experiencing this incredible and like totally unapologetic reinvigoration yep. it's being um marketed with lethal precision and it's it was like the inevitable um backlash to grunge pretense and and grunge has gone like post grunge at this point so i guess i don't know the record companies were like okay why not just lean all the way into palatability and packaging and if the hooks aren't there you can outsource the task and it, it look, I, I think like the distance between Vertical Horizon and the Backstreet Boys is probably measured in feet and not miles. <laughs> and Fastball is so distanced from everything that was going on um, at that time period. And it just, it put on top of like management failures. It was, uh, it was like the perfect storm. Yeah, and we got to get into the power pop thing because I think that's a really interesting aspect of this band in a in a, in a way that is unexpected based on the single. Um, but I want to get into the comments first from our Patreon page. 
we got a poll up, of course, for this record, and there will be some results, which we will share at the end of this, but want to talk about some of the comments. Um, Kyle Bittner said, fastball are neither good or bad, they just kind of exist. So it's like hey, a Schrodinger's... Kyle, <laughs> <laughs> it's like Schrodinger's band. They're neither good nor bad. They just they're just there. Uh Richard Waterman said, "Kyle, that's uh, that really is a bit harsh." So Richard was sticking up for you there. Um in saying that I do have some in saying that I do have some reservations about this album, the main one being it's three songs too long. If it was a tight 10, it would be much better be a much better album overall. The first 5 songs are brilliant and some of the album is almost great power pop. Fire Escape, better than it was, and Sooner or Later are great songs, and they stand out to me. I would take Good Old Days, Newer Road, and Sweetwater, Texas off the album to make 10. I remember hearing The Way on the radio, on Radio 1, and then going to my local record store the day after to pick up the album. I have fond memories of being 17 when it came out. It's a worthy album from me. And then Willie Dillon said, I can't remember if I've listened to this whole album, but The Way is one of my favorite songs, and it has such a nostalgic feeling to it, and the guitar solo is so cool. Well, there you go. Um, And we'll get to that poll at the end. So let me ask you, Jay. Well, Jay, I know you knew the single, clearly. Everybody's heard the single. Had you listened to the record at all before this? Uh, I knew all three singles. Well, I remember all three getting played a lot in our local radio. Uh, they were one of those bands that too, that um, I wouldn't turn off when they came on the radio. Um, mm-hmm. so no, I never bought the CD uh, at the time. I listened to them, some of the recent, I think the 2019 record. Um, well, we talked and, about that. I believe that was the first time that uh, Marissa joined us, right? was for that episode yes, I, I would bring fastball up the first time i ever <laughs> appeared to talk about something and i think at that time i might have sent went back and sampled some of this but i didn't hadn't spent any decent any decent time with it in the past right and i remembered the songs um besides the way out of my head and fire escape i don't know were they those were both singles i'm guessing i don't i know they were at least played so i don't know if they were got yeah. actually you know, singles put out or whatever, but, um, I definitely remember both of them. And I remember thinking, man, um, out of my head reminds me of Billy Joel and I don't know why. <laughs> and I, I that like, gave me like a visceral disgusted <laughs> response because I loathe Billy Joel. Hey, and I love that song. Hey, uh Oh, it's on. Oh, <laughs> I'm pushing back. You're, you're talking to one of, you're talking to a Joel head right here. But if you, if you mean that as a compliment, honestly, I oh, no. take it. Oh, uh, no. No, to me, it reminds me much more of, like, 70s singer-songwriter Billy Joel than, like, 80s pop Julie, Billy Joel. You didn't start the fire, Billy Joel? <laughs> yes. Sometimes I feel like I am drunk behind the wheel. The wheel of possibility, however it may roll. Give it a spin.
Jay, you've gone back, you've listened to the whole record. Tell me one thing you liked about All the Pain Money Could Buy by Fastball. What I heard was uh, actually a lot of maturity, which was interesting. I think at the time, listening to the, the music when it came out, it definitely struck me as being different. It didn't sound like a lot of the alternative rock at the time on the radio. And I couldn't quite pick, put my finger on what it was at the time. Now going back, um, there's like this discipline and um, I guess maturity around doing whatever's best for the song, which I appreciated. So even though you can tell there, and, and from listening to the history, you know, it's a three-piece band, guitar, drums, bass. They don't necessarily use that format all the time on the record. You know, they're using whatever... Um, is needed to make the song work and even like i'm, assuming, I'm guessing there's different singers because there's definitely different voices on the record or different tones of voices so you've got this you know approach where you can tell they're like highly crafting these songs and then in the studio working through you know a lot of times featuring electric piano or organ um, over guitar or um you know even horns or you know, and also adding like uh, lots of little dynamics and production um, craft that I appreciate. So it was a surprisingly, I mean, I guess for the genre and because there was so much, I think, radio play of this stuff, I, I probably in my own mind had a bias on like, oh, this is going to be super simple and, you know, mm -hmm. but when I dug into it and really listened more deeply, um, there's a lot there in terms of craft, in terms of, you know, understanding how to make the songs work, how to make a chorus, how to write a hook, essentially stay out of the way of the songs, which I really appreciated. It was kind of funny as you guys were talking about like why, maybe why the band wasn't more, wasn't able to continue the success. You know, one of the things about them that I remembered then and sort of was reminded of is they're a bit anonymous, like visually, like there's nobody in the band that really stands out as like, oh, that's the singer, or they're the band that looks like this. I mean, they just look like three, ultra, I don't know, three rock dudes. Like, there's nothing particularly memorable about them. And it's almost like, but that's part of, I think, what works here. Like, they're almost anonymous, and like, these are the songs we write, and we're going to put those up front and make them as good as we possibly can. And this isn't about, like, our image or some message or whatever. It's like, we listen to a lot of Beatles and a lot of really good music growing up and you kind of hear that I think as well come through and kind of the I guess the the heart of what these songs is so like you know the way it's got like this kind of like marimba thing which they obviously like emphasize at the beginning with the Casio like lo-fi intro thing to kind of set up like hey this is the origin of the song almost but then as you get into it it kind of carries you through the whole record where there's like there's some thread of like traditional music, whether it be even like 60s rock and roll, but you also hear like little tinges of country and you hear little tinges of like Latin music and like just these little pieces and parts of like 
now that I live in Austin, I kind of get a little bit more where they probably were coming from on those influences because those mm-hmm. are all the types of culture and music that you hear here. Um, so I appreciated like that part is is there, it's present. If you you needed to dig for it a little bit and you start to realize like, oh, this is where this came from. And, you know, this is like a little Beatles harmony or, you know, there's little pieces and parts here where they're picking up, picking their influences up and, but then representing them in a way that um, is about the songs. It's not like, well, getting what it doesn't, what doesn't work sometimes, but it's not like overly kitschy or, trying to be too experimental and bringing all those things together. It's, it's, it's about like of this palette of influences and skills and musicians and everything that we have at our disposal. Like how can we make these songs work? Which again, to go back to my original point was it felt like just sophisticated uh, from that standpoint. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think the, beyond the single because i've always thought that the that the way is a really cool song but if you were to take that song and play it for somebody go now what does the rest of the record sound like Hmm. you'd have a hard time figuring it out and what the rest of the record a lot of it is is a really really good power pop record like in the vein of the posies and the grays and and what was going on in in 90s power pop with songs like Better than it better than it was is like the best song the posies didn't write for you know frosting on the beater or or sooner or later. I mean sooner or later sounds like a super drag song almost. parts of it and when those moments hit i'm like this is this is a sweet spot for me um because they have the two singers which means you're getting harmonies like built in there and i don't always know who's singing the lead i i know i can tell the difference in their voices but i don't know which one's tony and which one's my like who sings the way uh that's that's a tony song so who by and large whoever um wrote the song and tony and miles share songwriting duties um almost 50 50 um whoever is singing the lead on that song is the one who wrote it and i can tell the difference no problem but um my father who is still in the like honeymoon discovery phase of adoring the band is learning to pick the two voices apart and they uh i mean honestly i think that's a testament to how well they complement each other and just how yeah lucky it is that the band gels the way it does and i I did start to be able to tell the difference not only in terms of their vocals but 
they have styles as songwriters. I feel like Tony tends to have more of a stylistic approach to the songs. It's almost like he says, I want to write something with a little bit of like a Latin feel with like the way or out of my head has this like 70s singer songwriter feel to it, like a Billy Joel or an Elton John type song. Whereas I feel like with the Miles songs, you get much more of like these are like genre like this is a power pop song. This is this I'm writing in different styles of of rock in a way that like maybe Tony is not approaching, which is it provides a nice balance because I think if this was just like 10 tracks of sooner or later or better than it was, it would be a good power pop record. But the fact that there's a diversity to the sound between their two vocals and between their styles as songwriters, um, it really makes it a an interesting listen from beginning to end because of that. It's it's a surprising record that the idea of sophistication is like the point that I think I was thinking or trying to get to, but I didn't quite uh, reach it in my head, which is just that all the songs feel really well fleshed out and they all feel like they hit the right production ideas in terms of, you know, the, the guitar solo in the way was mentioned, like that's an, a really like not a hard guitar solo, but it's hard to nail the right tone for that. And it's hard that to like, second take. yeah. And it's, it's, it's a, it's as much a studio thing and a playing thing as it is like a writing thing. Like you just got to be willing to dial that in and find that really that correct sound. Cause they could, that could have been a distorted different guitar solo and it would have sounded out of place. And there's a lot of that on this record where there's like organs and, and things that like just little touches that serve the songs so well, as opposed to, this is our three piece format. We're going to use that. Like I think of like, you know, like an early green day where there's like no difference between each of the songs in terms of, you know, if you listen to Dookie, like it's pretty much the same three piece setup every single song. There's, right. you know, I mean, it, the, to me now that like, I've actually been able to speak with both Tony and miles, you know, while seeing them play shows you you really do get a sense of their respective personalities in and how they write and um you know what, what what you mentioned with sort of tony deciding he's going to take a particular approach with a given song this is going to be a 70s style uh produced ballad or this is going to be a a kind of latin inflected or sort um the way is kind of like a combination of that and almost like a a Bisame Mucho vibe. Um, he he really just has this incredibly encyclopedic knowledge of popular music, and I, I and I and it's, I don't want to say that's specific to Tony because Miles is also very um, well learned in that regard, and the two of them like approach songwriting from the perspective of musicians who are first and foremost fans like part of the reason i think i love fastball so much is because the the music that they grew up listening to and that they gravitated toward is the same kind of music that i always have um but at the same time you know they uh, miles listens to a lot of like uh weirder stuff and 
I, I like don't have um, the list in front of me of like the interview where he name dropped what he's been listening to recently, but um, you, you can you can really hear their personalities in the way they go about songwriting and the fact that the two of them like the the the, the end product always transcends the sum of the individual parts, even though Miles is writing a certain set and, and Tony is writing another, they lend their talents to each other in a way that is very complimentary and dispenses with like the specific songwriter vanity or ego. Now, did you pick up the, uh, I'm assuming you've picked up the bonus version of this album. Yeah. Have you heard the song, This Guy's in Love With You? Yes, um, but not recently enough for me to be able to comment on it. Well, I just, I think it's an interesting little window into where they are as a band because that was a Burt Bacharach song written for the Herb Albert Tijuana Brass Band in like the 1960s. I think that was, yeah, 1968. Uh that's an that's a deep cut to cover. <laughs> and it's I totally understand what you're saying about having encyclopedic knowledge because it's guys like this who listen to the deep cuts of Burke Bacharach or or Herb Albert who are going to cover a song like that and then also incorporate what I would describe as more like timeless sounds into what they're making so that you know, you put on this record now. One of the it's things that was unusually well, it, it has aged very well. It does not sound like a 1998 record in the way that like, you know, a, a, a lot of heavier records from that time with their production choices, you know, the, the bad, um, uh, new metal stuff and, the, even some of the experimental stuff we've listened to that's like it references this these these same things hasn't done it as well i'm thinking of like caviar is a good example that we've mentioned a couple times yes where it's like, you can tell the people that were involved in that had the same or had a similar like knowledge base and reference base but the way that they produced it and decided to actually execute it doesn't hold up as well as something like this right or even also... go ahead sorry go ahead well, I was going to say, even the, the record we just did, Firewater, which had yeah. a lot of like non-traditional influences in terms of being a rock album, you could tell that they were very studied as musicians, but actually getting that to incorporate into the record was a lot more clunky than what we've heard in terms of it, other bands. It didn't feel like it was as in service of the song. So to compare it to Firewater, I felt like Firewater was more like gimmicky, like, hey, we're going to have this instrument and we're going to write a song around it or these types of... Right, we're writing a cabaret song. Right, or this type of, you know, world music influence. We're going to go take, write a rock song around it. Not, we've got this song. What's the best way to present it and record it so that people understand what we're trying to say? Yep. So like, there's something that like when I if if I were to have a constructive Venn diagram of uh like nineties rock bands regardless of genre, um to me the the trait that's at the very center of it is this kind of like navel gazing, you know, this super 
uh, indulgence of one's own subjectivity. And back to what like Jay was saying about this, this kind of maturity that's present. I, I think part of that is because, um, you know, th their success was not overnight, even though the band itself uh, got together in that incarnation in 1995, those three individual members were, you know, grinding away in their local music scene for over a decade. They had been playing music, looking for like, you know, the band that was going to get them a break for years and years and years. And it, they're, the, the whole like unifying theme of the, the record is one of, despite, you know, it's, it's upbeat tone, you know, those power pop instrumentations and, and affectations, it's, it's kind of world weary and jaded uh, you know, all these songs about like, you know, roads leading to nowhere or treading yeah. water, Charlie, which way to the top man, you know, sooner or later. Tail. Yep. Yeah. These are all like, and you know, they were in their thirties, uh, at least two out of the three of them when all the pain money can buy went platinum. So the, the subject matter that they were approaching was that of we've spent so much fucking time grinding uh on the road exhausted and the result is that all the pain money can buy is sort of like the the grim wry sardonic road trip record it's the anti road trip record from the way all the way through to the end yeah i did know i did pick up on that sort of uh lyrical bent where it's just a lot of like um it's not complaining it's just weary you can just tell there's a weariness to a lot of the record and and there's a lot of like sarcasm with regards to some of the you know some of the lyrics and 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 them being in their 30s like you mentioned that does definitely lend itself to having you know the difference between somebody who's 21 who's putting out their sophomore record in the 90s and someone who's like 30 is a, a massive psychological difference especially if you've been at it for a decade um and you think well this might be my last shot yeah i mean when, when you think about like the first album and the sort of green day style uh stylizations there's there's a, a huge gulf between first album fastball which is you know, I approaches the whole, do you have the time to listen to me whine? And then by all the pain money can buy, it's like, well, there's nothing new about money woes. That's, that's <laughs> yeah. not something, uh, you know, a, like a punk band is going to, yeah, the, the, that's, that's not their wheelhouse. And Fastball has made a career out of that world-weary tongue-in-cheek um approach to songwriting and and rock music so what are your uh besides the way that people know what are your your tracks for this record that if you were if someone's like having conversation with you it comes up that you're a big fastball fan they're like yeah i know that that one song the way what are the other good songs on that record and don't um, say all of them 
<laughs> I, yeah, I was like, can I say all of them? I mean, I was I was offended by the implication that the final three songs should have been cleaved off the album because I think those they're they're so good. But uh, if I ha had to narrow it down, I'm gonna try and be diplomatic and give a selection of Miles songs and a selection of Tony songs. So in the Tony court, I would say warm, fuzzy feeling, which is like, it blows my fucking mind that song, how good it is. I got a warm, fuzzy feeling When I saw you on TV You were wearing a piece of out of my head and if I'm going to pick a couple of Miles songs I would go with it's a tie between Fire Escape and Charlie the Methadone Man and Damaged Goods Charlie the Methadone Man has like a um, I don't know what it is it like it's uh, Jay. Maybe you can. There's some like guitar stuff in that song that has like a '70s like prog rock almost sound to it. I think uh, I'm not quite sure how to nail it down, but there's some like really interesting flourishes on, in the midpoint of that song where they're they're going off on some guitar st stuff that is not on a lot of the record. Um, that I was just not expecting. Like, I mean, I feel like the outro to that song is pure John Lennon uh, psychedelia. Yeah, it's like got and a psychedelic yeah. kind of feel. So I don't know if it's meant to be like latter era Beatles or 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 channeling some like Floyd or something. I'm, I'm not sure like what's going on there, but it has like this trippy kind of sound. Yeah, I really wish I knew more about um, the origins of that song. Um, my understanding is that Miles is a little mystified as to, like, its cult status among fastball fans. Like, every other fastball nerd that I've spoken to, it's, it's like, in our top five. And prior to recently, I guess, it didn't frequently get, you know, played at gigs. But um, hmm. when, when I first heard it live, I just, like, freaked out. I love that song. Kick it, kick it, it's lonely in this brain. Drink it, drink it, to try and stay sane. Charlie the Methodome Man chases his tail. Just 
All right, so here's the point where you might want to um, mute us. Jay, what didn't work for you on this record? Um, I, well, it's all about the songs, right? So when the songs don't work, the whole record, that uh, the songs don't work, they don't work. There's not a lot that um, they're going to do to save, you know, a song in terms of like, well, the song's not great, but there's this amazing, you know, performance by so-and-so. Not to say the performances aren't, amazing but the performances serve the song so uh you know i think there's some material on here that's not as strong i'm more critical i think in the mid section of the record so um slow drag um is kind of a slow drag um and god good old days i think to me it steps over the kitsch line with those horns yeah i was gonna Um, say I, i bet it's the horns it, I feel like I'm listening to a Chicago song. Um, it has a, a Chicago minute. feel. It's a little Saturday uh, in the Park on that one. Yeah. And I would bet money that in that case, it's a, a deliberate reference on Tony's behalf. And it has That's that like song. that beat, that the bump ba dumpa dumpa dumpa. That I've heard bands do that a lot, and it's like so hard because that evokes such a upbeat, happy feel. That yeah. like you can't do anything. It's almost like when you're in six eight or 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 um, three four where you have to do that swing beat. And it's like, how do you get out of that swing beat? Everybody gets locked into that same like sort of cadence with the vocal yeah, like, and yeah, <laughs> super bouncy. Yeah, yeah. And so when you're doing that bump, but bump, but bump, but bump, that beat that just like it locks you into a particular style that you cannot break out of. So yeah, I agree. I agree with you on that one. That was where I was like, mm, I don't love this. Um, Charlie, the Methadone Man. I, I don't know that I, that song is really interesting. Like it does the light dark shift in a way that is very different. <laughs> I think it may be maybe also where you're coming from. There's some chord changes in there that yeah, are not what you wouldn't typically pick. Um, and the way that they go from this very droney, dark sounding verse immediately to this bright chorus. Um, I'm a little bit like stuck on that song. Like I'm not quite to the point where I'm intrigued by it. I'm not quite sure if I am to the point where I quite have got it. Um, I'm also wondering like placement wise, just where it is on the record for me. Uh, Maybe that's part of the problem. It's just that part of the record gets a little slow. And then the only other song I I just thought was a little meandering was uh, which way to the top. Um, it's got some great roads in it though. I mean, it, it almost gets saved by that. It's just the chorus is, you know, not, not a super strong chorus and for them. I, I want something that's, that's really pokey and melodic. And, um, so I just felt a little like a John Bryan kind of Amy Mann kind of song that, that wasn't quite, um, as good as the other material. So it's really just, you know, some songs here and there that, that aren't as strong as some others for me. But uh, that's about it. What did you think of Nowhere Road? Nowhere Road. It, it's um, It's got that, like, organ, very bright organ at the beginning. And it's got, like, a huge chorus, but I felt like it almost felt, like, too simple. Like It, it reminded me, it had, to me, that had the, the, the intro side, like once you get to the chorus and sort of get into the song, 
I could sense like the like the Austin country vibe in that mm. that was coming through. Okay. Um, and once I picked up on that, I was like, oh, I get what this is. Like this is like, you know, pop country through the lens of you know some somebody writing a pop album. Um, so it's got that little bit of a twang to it, especially with the chorus. You know, it's, it's almost like an Americana style chorus. It is simple, but I think it works pretty well. Um, that song is like the the coda is what makes it, in my opinion. I I love Nowhere Road, um, I, and and it's one of my best or, or one of my favorite uh, like examples of of Joey drumming, um, because Joey is very much sort of a, a a kind of tasteful in the pocket drummer on the studio recordings. Whereas when you see him at a show, uh, he's, he's a totally formidable beast. He's, he's like Ringo on Adderall. He's unbelievably (laughs) good, incredibly fast, hits the drums really hard. All things that I love is, is, uh, you know, a, 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 an avowed Keith Moon supremacist. So he can, he can definitely like court that chaos when he wants to. And that outro coda, whatever you want to call it, where he just sort of lets loose is me just throwing my hands in the air going, yeah, Joey. <laughs> he sounds like a young Liberty DeVito. <laughs> <laughs> Bringing it back to the Billy Joel. Bringing it back to Billy Joel. Um, and I, I think it le- it leads to Sweetwater, well, like the end of that song, and just thematically, it all kind of makes sense to me. So I'm less harsh on the. I mean, I'm, I'm all good with the end of the record. I think it's more. I mean, those are mostly album tracks, but I think they make sense in the context of the of the album. Okay, interesting. Uh, what doesn't work for you, Marissa? <laughs> one thing. Give us one thing. One thing. Um... There's got to be uh, one song where you're like, I don't love this song. I just like it. It could be the okay, smallest okay. net ever. Okay, so the uh, corny, dramatically pitch-shifted, I think they're Miles vocals that are in um, Sooner or Later. The oh, baby, oh, baby, oh. Uh, That's gotcha. like not, that does not fly with me. But I also think, like, I, I, I'm not sure that the the band necessarily at this point in their career um, abides by that decision either. So I'd, I'd have to ask them. <laughs> I think it would be better without it. But other than that, I, I mean, the thing that roped me in the, the magic for me is a, you know, a 10 year old where you're taking those first few steps out of like everything you hear is kind of passive incidental exposure, whether it's your family or your friends or what's on MTV. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, this is the first time I imprinted on a record where it started having the, the bearings, the, the beginnings of teenage identitarian significance. So from that perspective of complete adoration, this record can do no wrong and I, I, I wish more people knew of the band, not just Beyond the Way, which is an unassailable single that deserves everything it got um, and that, you know, honestly, I could probably write a dissertation on. 
and I think I've threatened to do that. But I, I wish that people had heard the rest of the album and, and paid more attention to, to everything else that's there and everything else that the band has done afterward. I mean, they were plagued by misfortune, sure, but if if you just listen to Keep Your Wig On or Little White Lies, you'd, I, I mean, not only would you think, uh, or not only would I think that you would find these songs just as great as the best of the tracks on All the Paint Money Can Buy, but you would, you would understand like the unifying theory of fastball. There would be, you would understand this through line from Make Your Mama Proud to uh, The Help Machine. And, you know, I, I feel like um, maybe I'm imagining this, but some of the comments on the Patreon poll were like, I, I, I you know, the, this, this feels disjointed or, you know, maybe it would have been a better EP because I don't sense like how these songs fit into a grander scheme. The discography makes it abundantly clear. And so that's my, my insistence is that you don't stop at all the pain money can buy. Interesting. Unfortunately, uh, we're not able to start our fastball podcast specifically <laughs> at this moment. Uh, so we're locked into just one record, <laughs> but that doesn't mean that the, the voting um, was negative for this album. We're going to get to it. We have our final vote tally. First, we have to vote Jay. We're the album better EP or decent single. What do you say? Uh, we're the album. It's only 42 minutes. Um, you know, like I said, that, that there's a section in there that I don't love as much as the rest of it. Um, but conceptually, like, I think it holds together great as an album. Um, I think they work their butts off to keep it interesting too. Like, um, mm-hmm. you know, th- they keep the song rating as sharp as they, you know, as they can. There's not a lot of indulgence, but there's enough like flourishes and instrumentation and all kinds of dynamics and cool stuff going on that it, that it keeps you interested all the way through. And then just, you know, um, just sonically and from a songwriting standpoint and thematically, like it all holds, holds together really well. So yeah, it's where the album for me, uh, I'm going with decent single. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> just wanted to see, I mean, it is a decent single. <laughs> it, it's actually decent three singles, right? Uh, no, this is a worthy record. And I was surprised because I didn't really know what to expect. And we've had one hit wonders on the, on you know, episodes and you go, Oh, well they clearly wrote a single and the rest of the record is not up to that. And I think the rest of the record is for the most part. I mean, I'm, I'm going to nitpick like, you know, a couple songs here and there like we did, but their craft of as songwriters is at a really high level. And I think that's, what's most interesting about this record now, I understand if like if you're into stuff that's a little bit edgier, you know, if your preference is Sonic Youth and and stuff like that. Yeah, this is going to sound like pretty commercial and and clean and it's not going to be like what you're going for. But if you're. If you are want a like 
deceptively simple record that actually has a lot of cool layers and there's a lot of interesting takes on on different genres of of rock um and stepping away from that in in some respects on some of the songs i think this is kind of a surprise record in a lot of ways i I wasn't (laughs) expecting it to be as um as diverse and as compelling as it as as it ends up being and the majority of folks at patreon agree 54 to 46 this was a close one but but it it won worthy album the the naysayers were defeated on this particular episode it's it's funny you said what you did because um while i was going over a bunch of old footage in, in preparation for this this episode i found a 1998 electronic press kit that i like dug up on youtube and at one point in it miles turns to the camera and says this is rock and roll music we're not an alternative rock band at all and i think that's it right there yeah 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 that's a and i think that's probably why this still sounds good because it's not written for the times it was written just to be written and stand on its own as opposed to trying to make something that fit in. So one thing I, um, I was kind of blown away by it and I mentioned it earlier, but I'm just, I'm curious on a little bit more of the details on it. So there's a lot of like very good organ and elect Rhodes piano performances on this record. Mm -hmm. Who is playing that? And how did they do that live? And like, how did, I'm curious how that even came to be because like a lot of these songs are, I'm not sure how, what they sound like without that. Um, I would guess that it's Tony. Um, Tony, I think, writes a good chunk of his material and, you know, they're, they're in the demos as well on keyboard. Okay. So um, I, th- I think that's uh, why that manifests in the way that it does based on the and credits that, it looks like he's he's all the keyboard stuff wow yep. and then he's sense. also credited with the bass on the record and i believe when they play live that's where they have the touring bass player right mm. yeah i think my uh sorry tony prefers to play guitar and keys on stage as as opposed to uh being you know relegated to the bass guitar so at least that's what I've observed. Stuck in the back playing bass like a chump. Been there. <laughs> well, Jay because knows. there are three PCs, he's always up front, and, and right. Joey is the one in the back on the riser. <laughs> exactly. No, bass player, you're back. I don't care if you're the lead singer or not. You're you're back. You go back. Behind behind there. There you go. Um, and, of course, this is going to be a worthy album from you as well, Marissa. I'm, I'm not doubting that. Oh, naturally, yeah. Yes. I mean, I, I have... Uh, spent so much money and so much time just like following them over the past few years. And it's been a joy. And uh, yeah, like I said, they, they were my, my first, my first love in a sense. <coughs> um, for, for a lot of people that's kiss, but for you it's fastball. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny to watch like what, how your musical tastes like, change and don't change after that i think you started in a better place than most of us (laughs) 
I, I started with Billy Joel, so there you go. Yep. And, you, Which, and you're not the only fastball fan uh, who adores Billy Joel. Um, you know, the uh, of the, like, handful of other people I, I see at every fastball gig in the Northeast, um, one of them is my friend Don, who's a huge, uh, huge Billy Joel fan, so... I know Don. We've we've uh, we've talked uh, River of Dreams many a times. Oh my gosh! Okay, <laughs> no, I'm wow, kidding. Just kidding. Okay. No, <laughs> you had me there for a minute. I mean, I'm a full Negronian. So. <laughs> no, uh, no, I I keep my Billy Joeldom to myself. It's all it's all private. Um, well, thank you for bringing this record to us. This was really interesting. I know you were like, hey, this has sold a million copies and stuff like that. But I think, you know, we've talked about it. These records that have a legit like hit single and people don't know what the rest of the record sounds like. It's just as fun to go back and, and listen to these records and and try to figure out what was going on as much as like the ones that completely were under the radar and didn't have a single. These are in some ways even more fascinating because you can hear, you know, a band trying to figure out different aspects of their sound and how confident they are or not confident. And, um, if they can actually make a whole record as good as a single, which most bands cannot. And right, I, I yeah, think like it, it went platinum, but the rest of its contents have really coasted underneath the radar for the past. Right. Yeah. 22 years. Yep. So where's my wrap up notes? There they are. Uh, if you would like to be a person who suggests an album for us, you can do so by joining our union, the dig me out union at dmounion.com or dig me out dmounion.com or dig me is where you go. Uh, we have different tiers and depending on which tier you're at, you get different cool things. We have polls going all the time for album reviews, as well as our suggestion albums, uh, polls, which are eight records every month that are suggested through our website at digmeoutpodcast.com. And then also you get stickers, t-shirts, um, stuff like that. Uh, you can pick our round tables for various episodes. And then of course, also available at Patreon is our box newsletter, which goes out every Saturday it includes a calendar of new releases for books, movies, and music relevant to the 80s and 90s artists that we cover, and always includes a couple of reviews of those new records. One-minute reviews, both in audio and and uh, written or typed. And then uh, if you like what you heard, Apple Podcasts, that's where you go to leave some positive words for the podcast. Help us uh, take down all of the uh, the evil NP- NPR empire and uh, jump ahead of them. So that's it. Welcome to Zoom, everybody. Zoom. <laughs> Zoom is the future. It's a thing. Zo- I, we just heard about it. Where, <laughs> yeah, if you heard about this new Zoom thing, people are really into it. I know um, it's weird. No, we've made the official transition now. We're 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 um. We've left Skype. I canceled our membership. We no longer are with Skype. And uh, so we're going to record these in video and be posting them on Patreon. <laughs> if you want to see our. 
our hairy faces and are much more attractive than our, nicer p- our pandemic <laughs> our pandemic beards and and i don't have one right now but um, yeah i just started thinking about this i was like oh we're gonna be a camera <laughs> yeah that was like an oh shit moment briefly but uh, <laughs> better put, a, better yeah, put on a, better put on a hat and, and a pair of shorts <laughs> <laughs> thank you for putting on shorts jay we appreciate it yeah everyone oh, was fully clothed <laughs> so every, you're yeah. all good we're all good all right for jay i'm tim we're out we'll be back next week with another episode of dig me out Cause I-